Zebra School proudly presents Zebra Ears, a podcast for new parents. It is our mission to bring you relevant health and education content to help you navigate your baby's first three years of life in a calm and confident way. We've gathered some of the best pediatric care specialists and other experts to answer some of your most burning questions about parenthood. So thanks for stopping by. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Today, our guest is Dr. Rebecca Leverson. Dr. Leverson is a pediatric infectious disease specialist in the Northern Virginia area, a graduate of Louisiana State University and Louisiana State University School of Medicine in Shreveport. Dr. Leverson did her residency, internship, and fellowship at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Today, she's talking to us about COVID-19 in children and the vaccine trials. Dr. Leverson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So before we get started, uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what encouraged your interest and your practice in pediatric infectious diseases? Sure. So um, I am one of four children. Um, Our parents are microbiologists, so we always grew up um, in the sciences and always grew up in the lab. Um, And so it was a natural extension for all four of us children to go into either science or um, engineering. And so... I fell in love with um, certainly science and then uh, medicine, and then uh, infectious disease um, in children was a natural next step. And so I have been at ANOVA Children's uh, for now over 10 years and was at Children's National um, before that. And it's just, I think, the best job that one can have because every day you get to help someone get better. Wow, okay. So uh, as a doctor of, of infectious diseases having to do with kids, could you tell us a little bit about how COVID-19 is impacting children specifically and if it differs in the manner in which adults are impacted? Sure. So early on in this pandemic, we thought that children uh, seemed to be spared from this disease. However, those early reports were really um, focused based on children really being Um, at home and away from any contact with Mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2. And so what we've learned over the last year is that children are susceptible to this virus. They can get very sick. Luckily, um, most of them do not get very sick, but children can get the infection. They can get sick from it and very sick from it, and they can spread it to other people. And so they are people who need to be protected against this virus, just like adults. So while children haven't been uh, impacted in the exact same way, we have heard about long-term COVID symptoms in some adults. Are we seeing that at all in children? So there, it's, it's, a, it's a little hard to um, know exactly um, how many children have what is called long COVID or um, post-acute COVID um, symptoms because we also have an overlay of all of the social emotional disruption to children's lives over the last year. But we do see children who have had COVID who do have a lot of um, symptoms afterwards, especially our children who've had pretty severe uh, COVID infection. So are there uh, some children's illnesses or conditions that have leaned more towards being causing those patients to be more vulnerable to the virus? 
Yes, ma'am. So certainly we've seen in adults and in children that there are medical conditions that uh, put you at a higher risk for more severe disease. And so in children like adults, one of the factors is obesity. And so we are seeing a national and international epidemic of obesity, and that's not only in adults, but in children. And then there are other medical conditions that put children at higher risk. So if they have a chronic um, lung condition, if they have a chronic heart condition, if they have um, something that causes their immune system to be weaker, such as sickle cell disease or cancer, those children are also at higher risk. And so the conditions in adults um, and the conditions in children are very similar as to what can put you at higher risk for more severe disease. Okay, so moving on from the disease, we know that there are pediatric vaccine trials that have been completed. So my question for you right now is, could you tell us, um, could, actually, could you give us an overview of what those vaccine trials looked, looked like? Sure, sure. So um, any, uh, any vaccine trial um, goes through several steps. And so these are typically called phases. So there's a phase one trial, which is where you're testing just for um, um, safety of the vaccine and looking at dosing. Uh, so phase one, phase two, and then phase three is where you have really a very large population um, of people who are either getting the real thing or they're getting a placebo and no one knows what they're getting. And we're looking at overall um, benefit of the vaccine, so efficacy, how well does it work, and looking at side effects. And so in adults, we've had those trials that have been ongoing since really um, spring of last year. And those trials, especially for the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, came to the FDA for review in December. And at the same time that those trials were given the emergency use authorization by the FDA and recommended for use in adults and in adolescents 16 and above with the Pfizer vaccine, um, there were still ongoing trials in children who were younger than 16 years of age. Okay. Younger than 16, okay. So um, have we seen hesitancy on the part of parents as these new uh, juvenile doses of the vaccine come to the market? I think it is appropriate for everyone to look at what the information is about the vaccines and to then be able to look at um, benefit and side effects. Um, certainly we've seen hesitancy, but I think that the very Im most important thing is to be able to have an open, honest conversation with um, your child's doctor. And so if you have specific questions, um, you may be able to find those on the CDC website or our website or other locations. Um, but if you have you know, additional questions, I think it's very important to have an open dialogue with your child's pediatrician so that you can have those questions answered to your satisfaction. I can tell you that last week um, when the um, Pfizer vaccine was given authorization for 12 and above, um, my daughter was, um, there on the very first day um, okay. that it was uh, offered um, at the Innova Center and uh, got her first dose of vaccine. And um, she is uh, very eager to return back to some bit of normalcy, to be able to see her friends again, to be able to return to school in person, to be able to go on vacations. Um, and so that was one big step in the right direction. 
Okay, so I know a couple of parents who have also uh, started the vaccine process with their kids in the last week. So I'm wondering, um, is the U.S. the only country right now con- that is providing the vaccine for youth? And which pharmaceutical companies are providing that vaccine? Is Are they the same ones that we're seeing with the adult vaccines? Ah, good question. So actually, Canada um, authorized the vaccine 12 and above um, for Pfizer vaccine um, the week before the U.S. did. Uh, okay. And so we know that, you know, our uh, neighbors to the north um, are also vaccinating um, adolescents and um, and young um, preteens. Um, and um, and then many of the other countries are following suit uh, very closely. So the major vaccines that are out there, um, in the, with the three in the United States that are authorized are the Pfizer vaccine, um, the Moderna vaccine, both of those are messenger RNA vaccines. And so what that is, is that is um, the blueprint or the code to make the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so that's okay. all it does. It does not go into your nucleus. It does not change your DNA. It does not do anything there. Um, That's all it is doing. Um, And you make a good antibody response with that. Um, And then there's also the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen um, adenovirus vector vaccine, which is where there's the shell of the adenovirus, which is a common cold virus. And inside of it is the um, blueprint for, again, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And so that your body takes up similarly into your cells and your muscle cells and the cells around there. And then you start making that spike protein so that you make an immune protection against it. Okay, so uh, have we seen any of the uh, reactions? Are children seeing the same reactions that adults have seen? I know some adults have said that in the 24 hours post vaccination, um, primarily in the second, they've noticed maybe some feverishness and some tiredness. Um, and then some have had absolutely no, like I've had no response at all to it. So I'm curious, are we seeing the same in kids? Yes, ma'am. And so what um, Pfizer um, reported at the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices or ACIP meeting last week was that the rate of that reactogenicity, which is really your body um, showing a visible sign um, of Um, either fever or muscle aches or uh, chills or headache or tiredness, any of those symptoms um, that we saw this, they saw the same rate in adolescents as they did in, um, in young adults, 16 to 25 years of age. So the same rate. And as you said, more likely people have some of those symptoms is reported up to about 40% of people with the second dose of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those people who had felt sort of like I had, you know, flu-like illness um, for one day after the vaccine, and then it just magically went away. Okay. So uh, another question having to do with reaction to the vaccine, we know that there are certain children's illnesses that are treated with some biologics. And uh, since the biologics are already dealing with an immune system that is tampered down, uh, how does the COVID vaccine impact that Um, patient who might already have a medically uh, reduced immunization? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think think it's um, really important to know exactly what type of biological medicine you might be taking. For example, if your child has uh, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and they're getting Remicade, um, then um, 
that likely has very, um, very minimal uh, effect. But if there's a child who is getting um, more intensive treatment uh, of their immune system, like um, chemotherapy for a cancer, or they're getting rituximab or something like that, that affects your immune system in a different way. So each of those, um, for those patients uh, and children who are getting those type of treatments, you would want them um, to have a conversation with their specialist to say, hey, when is the best time for me to get this vaccine? Okay. So uh, could you tell us a little bit, like you've talked about the fact that this vaccine, primarily um, the Pfizer and Moderna are the messenger RNA and that the, uh, I'm sorry, one of them is the- offered, The J&J? The J&J, yes, the Johnson Janssen um, vaccine um, offers a blueprint in somewhat the common cold vaccine. Could you tell us how these resemble the other vaccines that we distribute annually, like the flu or pneumonia vaccines? Sure, definitely. So most of the vaccines that we've had to date are really um, looking at the specific protein mm -hmm. of that um, of the virus or the um, or the bacteria that we're trying to target. This is sort of one step back. When we think about messenger RNA, messenger RNA is that um, code that codes for the protein. And so it's just one step back from the actual protein that's um, that's injected into your arm. You're putting the message in and then your body picks that up and makes that protein. Okay, the protein that protects you. Okay, so where do we go from here? We've heard um, talk about potentially needing an annual booster shot like we would do with the flu. So what are we hearing and where do we stand in terms of um, moving towards that. And when would that begin? Would that be a year from now, two years from now? When would we even know whether or not that booster shot is going to be an issue? So I, those are all excellent questions. I think the data that we have so far on um, the rates of infection that are occurring in vaccinated people, which is very, very, very low, um, and the variants that we're seeing. So every virus changes, every virus mutates. Mm -hmm. And um, this uh, interest in variants or mutations of the virus um, lead us to look to say, hey, will my vaccine protect me against all of these mutations that occur as this virus circulates in many more people who are vulnerable to the virus? Um, thus far, the information that we have coming out of all of that science tells us right now things actually look really good. Awesome. So it's we're not certain that we're going to really need anything yet. Okay. What we want to continue to do is look at the 44,000 people who are in these clinical trials and look at how their antibody responses look and look to follow them. And so that's what's going to continue for the next two years is, you know, how are they doing? Are they seeing that they're having breakthrough infection or are they doing fine? What do their antibodies levels look like? And so we're going to wait and see. Um, at this point in time, things actually look um, pretty promising. So in terms of this is probably a question I could probably look up a little bit more information on, but uh, what percentage of the world at this point is um, vaccinating children? I know we talked a little bit about the fact that it's going on in different countries, but do we know a percentage yet about where um, we stand uh, globally in terms of children being vaccinated against the disease? 
that's a good question. I don't have um, I don't have a pulse on exactly that number. I know that the United States um, far exceeds all of the other countries in the world in regards to the vaccination effort. Um, and so, but exactly in the population 12 to 18 years of age, I don't have that number for for the whole world. Okay, thank you. Um, so Dr. Leverson, I wanna thank you to, for joining us today. And uh, could I ask you to tell our listeners one, um, under what circumstances would a family reach out to your practice? Um, and where would we reach you on social media or Okay, uh, good question. So let's see. So we certainly see any um, any child who has concern for an infectious disease. Um, we see children at the Anova Children's Hospital. And then we also see um, patients in our clinic um, at Pediatric Specialist of Virginia. And then um, I have a Twitter handle of PSVIDDoc um, that I'm not the most um, social person. Um, <laughs> But um, but I do have a, a Twitter handle, and then uh, those are those are pretty much my uh, my connections at this point. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, ma'am, certainly. Very good information. One thing that I would um, ask to maybe see if we can put into COVID infection in yes. kids that's sort of more unique is that. Um, there is a, a condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC, and this condition seems to occur in children about two to six weeks after an either asymptomatic or silent infection with COVID or a very mild infection with COVID. And that is actually the most life-threatening condition that we're seeing mm. uh, in children. And in the state of Virginia, it's been reported at least 70 kids who've had this confirmed. We have had at least 45 children just at our hospital. So wow. I think our numbers are underrepresenting. And in the United States, we've had almost 4,000 children to date. And this, this is an illness where Children present with high-grade fever, they may have a rash, they may have red eyes, severe belly pain, and their heart may be failing. And so they, many of these children, especially the uh, adolescents, need to be in the ICU because wow. they need medicines to keep their heart beating. And so this is a very, very um, serious uh, inflammatory uh, syndrome. We do know how to treat it. We don't know the long-term heart complications that children can have with this. And we don't know if there are gonna be long-term heart complications, but I think that's yet another reason to protect children uh, with vaccination and all of the other measures, social measures that we can do right now for children less than 12, where we don't have a vaccine yet available. So this is the uh, two to six weeks after a silent or minor, uh, what seems like a minor form of the infection. Yes, ma'am. And so what we what we are thinking about is, you know, why does this occur? We're thinking that what happens is that those children's immune systems just are not making a robust enough response to be able to calm down the infection. And so they make like sort of a hyper inflammatory response. And that's when they get sick uh, several weeks later. Are these often children who don't present any kind of uh, illness at all, like normal immune systems? No, for other illnesses, they act appropriately. It's really just for this. Okay, wow. Okay, that's very interesting. 
Yeah. And so it's sort of, you know, some of the younger children more look more like an entity called Kawasaki disease, which is, again, what we think for the last 50 years is that uh, children have a viral infection and then their immune system overreacts. And so similar to that, but what we're seeing in our sort of older children and even some of our younger children, um, that they get severely ill with their heart um, and need to be uh, in the ICU um, on medicines to help keep their heart beating. Wow. Yeah, so that is something that we will be, I guess, testing and seeing more uh, discussion about as we move forward with this. Yes, ma'am. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Leverson, for joining us today. Um, very good information. joining us today. If you have questions or would like to leave a comment about this episode, please visit our website at thezebraschool.com. There you'll be able to access our library of episodes, find parenting resources, and browse our collection of product offerings and more.